0: Coming up on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast, it's time to ignore no more.
1: Turns out there was some some issues with my lungs, and then we were off from there.
2: You know, just that the fact that my eyes, lungs, and my skin was affected was huge at the time. Um, I had no idea that this was even an issue, um, and that it couldn't be resolved when I was there. So my journey was a lot, uh, a lot longer. Um, and a lot more difficult to to really to really deal with but I'm really happy that I'm here where I'm at now so
0: a physician and two patients join me on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast to talk about the reasons black americans need to participate in clinical trials and join the conversation in the sarcoidosis community
3: So overall, the disease is certainly, you know, more severe, more burdensome uh, in African-Americans. They're also more likely to be, you know, admitted to the hospital, sometimes up to nine times more than their Caucasian counterparts.
0: Coming up, statistics show sarcoidosis impacts Black Americans at a higher rate than other patients with SARC. They have more severe and chronic forms of SARC, higher rates of hospitalization, and a higher prevalence of depression, and a higher mortality rate.
3: You know, this is a group of people who are more likely to have the disease and yet less likely to seek care or less likely to be treated um, properly. So I think it speaks to the need of, you know, studying the disease more.
0: We're going to dig into it next on the FSR Sark Fighter Podcast.
1: This is the Sark Fighter Podcast living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host,
0: John Carlin. Hello and welcome to episode 74 of the FSR, Sark Fighter podcast, brought to you in part by Atire Pharma, which has a new drug called efsofitamide in stage three clinical trials. More information on that in the show notes. I am your host, John Carlin. I do this podcast because I want my fellow Sark fighters, whether you are a patient, whether you're somebody in the research or medical space, or even in the pharmaceutical space, to help you connect with other people here in the sarcoidosis space, to hear their stories and understand how sarcoidosis is affecting all of our lives and, hopefully, it makes you feel better to know you're not the only one out there dealing with all of this. Now, before we get to the interview today with fellow Sark fighters, Catherine Washington and Calvin Harris, and also Dr. Ogugwa Obi, just a, just a quick personal story. You guys hear me talk about cycling all the time, and I hope that you'll see this as a story of hope. Uh, as you know, I ride my bike to the point that I actually schedule my vacations around cycling. I may have mentioned in a previous podcast, my wife and I are just back from a cycling trip from our home in Virginia all the way to California, where in one day uh, with our bicycle group, we rode from the Pacific coast to the Redwood Forest, the Armstrong Redwoods, which is a state natural reserve, uh, where 805 acres of redwood trees are protected had lunch there, and then did some wine tasting on the way back to our hotel. Big day on the bike, fantastic scenery, and just kind of a, a bucket list day for me. Please try not to feel too sorry for me in my terrible life. but anyway, it, really, it really was a great day. Well, so now this past weekend, you know how in golf, people go out as you get to a certain age and this becomes doable, they want to shoot their age. So if you're 74 and you're a really good golfer, you might still have enough game to shoot your age. Well, in cycling, you try to ride your age in miles. And I would submit that's a little bit easier to do. So, but I set out to do 62 miles, uh, a 62 mile bike ride on Sunday. And I did it Quite easily on my birthday, so yay me, right? Well, in my cycling blog called Carl and the Cyclist, I've I've talked about riding with sarcoidosis, and in just this week, I got an inquiry from someone who was googling around and came across it, emailed me, and asked some questions, saying that they feel like they might be undiagnosed with sarcoidosis, and after reading what I wrote. Um, they, they wanted to know more, and so I'm, I'm helping that person along as they, they try to find their diagnosis. But a few years ago, you've heard me say I couldn't even finish 12 miles, which is just a normal little loop that I do from my house, my, my training loop when I'm itching to get out for a quick ride. I couldn't finish it. Uh, that was in part because of the prednisone, and then I was taking a, uh, a, a chemo drug at the time called Cytoxin. And I was in a bad spot. I really was. So then going out and be able, being able to ride my age and feel pretty good about it, um, is, uh, I'm going to take that as, as a big accomplishment. And uh, actually, we did it a little bit faster than I did a year ago. When you look at your average speed over the course of last year, it was 61 miles. This year, it was 62. Um, but we, we were a little bit faster on the same course this year, the same, same roads and all that sort of thing. So take that. Sarcoidosis. All right, uh, I just had to share share that little um, little personal victory, if you will. Now to the matter at hand, FSR has launched the Ignore No More Act Now, which is Advanced Clinical Trials for Equity in Sarcoidosis campaign, to raise awareness of racial disparities with a focus on increasing representation of Black sarcoidosis pa- patients. In specifically in clinical trials, and this is, this is a real problem. So here are some of the contributing factors, and I'm not making this stuff up. This is based on uh, uh, clinical research that's been done by professors and doctors and researchers, and, and they, we can say without hesitation that black Americans experience three barriers to care, including racial gender and socioeconomic barriers, gender barriers specific to black women. Um, And there are, of course, we hear about this a lot, systemic and then racial and socioeconomic factors that contribute to these poor outcomes. Uh, But more research is needed to better understand sarcoidosis, its manifestations, and why it has such a terribly profound impact on the black community. And the researchers have come to the conclusion that a one-size-fits-all approach to treating sarcoidosis leads to worse outcomes, and I could see where that would be true. And as you listen to the interview today, I think you'll see it too. Uh, And then uh, still looking at contributing factors, uh, the reasons that there's low representation of Black Americans in clinical trials include... And the folks are going to talk about this in the interview today. There's a lack of trust in the medical community. There is a low prioritization of minority recruitment in the trials. So that's not the minority's fault. They're not going to participate unless somebody asks them, right? There is hesitancy to ask minority patients to participate by doctors who for reasons that we'll get into. And then there are barriers associated with accessibility, time and financial commitments, lack of insurance, that type of thing, single parent households where the patient can't get away because they've got littles to take care of at home. Lots of things contributing to this, but when you aggregate it and you look at a certain population, all these glaring things just come rushing out, right? So the goal is to overcome these barriers by getting more Black Americans involved, specifically in clinical trials. And the guests today are among those trying to fix the problem, and they have some very impressive resumes. I just want to read to you uh, just some quick bios here who you will be hearing from. Dr. Ogugwa Obi, MD, is the ACT-NOW Clinical Advisory Committee member that we'll be hearing from today. Dr. Obi is an assistant professor of medicine and pulmonary and critical care at the Brody School of Medicine, East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. And she got her medical degree some 20 years ago. And Dr. Obi specializes in critical care medicine, sarcoidosis, and lung diseases. She's also the director of the East Carolina University Sarcoidosis Clinic, which she helped establish as a WASOG-recognized sarcoidosis center of excellence. She is also the co-director of the ECU Sarcoidosis ILD program and Director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the Vidant Medical Center in Greenville. She currently serves on the FSR Women of Color Clinical Advisory Committee and is a member of the FSR Scientific Advisory Board. We'll also be hearing from Catherine Washington. She's an Act Now Patient Advisory Committee member. She's a biologist, public health professional, and consultant, and her passion is for science and improving the lives of those around her. She has pulmonary, ocular, and cutaneous skin involvement of sarcoidosis, so a fellow sarc fighter but she believes in contributing to and being of service to her community as an advocate and by bringing awareness through education and community engagement. She serves on committees focusing on veteran suicide, opioid addiction, mental health and well-being in underserved communities. And Catherine wants you to know she's grateful for the opportunity to serve on the Patient Advisory Committee And she is looking forward to building lasting relationships with committee members and FSR. She loves to spend time with her family, with her friends. She says she loves the snow and she enjoys meditation and nature, which I think is kind of interesting for people with a military background. I don't know why I would say that, but just I just. So there you go. (laughs) Catherine did serve in the U.S. Army as a medic, and she was diagnosed with SARC after leaving the military. Calvin Harris is also joining us today on the panel. He should be no stranger to you if you listen to the FSR SARC Fighter podcast. He is an ACT NOW Patient Advisory Committee member, but he's been on the podcast before Calvin was diagnosed with SARC in 2014, but despite his disease, he is striving to live a full life in service of and to others. I will tell you that Calvin is the chief executive officer of the New York State Society of CPAs. Wow. Uh, grew up outside Washington, D.C., but now lives in Brooklyn, And Calvin has a twice-monthly column that he writes for sarcoidosis news. It's called Run Your Own Race. The title is inspired by his newfound love of running, something his first pulmonary sarc doctor said was impossible for him. But later and current doctors are encouraging it, and it's a good thing because he's very much still running. And he hopes his column reminds other sarcoidosis patients that our journey is our own race to run. That's a wonderful perspective. So Dr. Olby, Catherine Washington, and Calvin Harris are coming up next here on the FSR Fighter podcast. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Fighter podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter podcast. Welcome back to the FSR Sark Fighter podcast and we have a wonderful group of people here today that I want to introduce to you starting out with uh, Dr. Ogugwa Obi uh, MD and she is an ACTNow Clinical Advisory Committee member. And I've already given you her bio, but she is here along with Catherine Washington, who is an ACTNOW patient advisory uh, committee member, and she is a biologist and a public health professional, but also a sarcoidosis patient. And Calvin Harris returns to the FSR, Sark Fighter Podcast. He's also an Act Now Patient Advisory Committee member and a fellow Sark Fighter. So everybody, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you. Nice to be
3: here. Thank you so much, John. It's really good to be here.
0: So we've got a lot to talk about today, but I think the, the best thing to do maybe is to, before we start talking about the Act Now stuff, I want people to understand who they are hearing from. I'll start with Calvin. Calvin, first of all, uh, tell the listeners about your sarcoidosis journey and how you were diagnosed and, and how it's kind of manifested in your life.
1: All right. Uh, thank you, John. Well, first, it's good to be back with you again. And I, I think all in all, my my journey is one to where I, I was fortunate and, and, and better than most. Uh, roughly eight years ago, I had a strange bump on my nose uh, that friends had told me to get checked out. I went to a dermatologist who ended up doing a uh, biopsy on it, biopsy was negative. And then she immediately sent me to get x-rays, which I thought was strange. Why would I get x-rays on my chest for a nose? Turns out there was some some issues with my lungs and then we were off from there. So uh, that dermatologist sent me back to my primary care physician who looked at the scans and immediately also recognized there was something wrong, sent me to my uh, first pulmonologist, and then there we go. Uh, all in all, that took maybe three, four months. Uh, but part of my my good fortune, um, uh, no no pun intended, is that from the beginning, I had doctors who believed me and immediately realized that it was sarcoidosis. So Um, from the time of really getting checked out to my diagnosis was really just a few months. And um, so since then, I've joined the Johns Hopkins uh, Sarcoidosis Clinic. A lot of that is through uh, FSR uh, because I met one of the members at an FSR patient advisory conference. Uh, And um, I've really gotten exceptional care uh, because of that connection to Johns Hopkins and, and the resources I've made also through FSR.
0: Yeah. And, and I know from having uh, had you on the show before, you still, even with all of that, you've still had to struggle a little bit. Um, yeah. And, but you've also um, taken it to sarcoidosis by running. Uh, not right. like you, I, I know you told us you already ran just four miles this morning.
2: Right. <laughs> right. Right.
0: Right. <laughs> so, right. So, um, yeah. All right. Well, I want to shift gears before we before we get into some of this other stuff, and I want to talk to Catherine next because Catherine, you did not have the good fortune that Calvin had when sarcoidosis started to appear in your life. So, so tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. First, I'd like to say thank you for having me on today. It's really an honor to be here. Um, so, my journey to diagnosis is a little bit different. Um, So I was active and healthy, and I was training in the Army at that time, and I served as an Army medic. But um, despite all my medical training, I ignored the symptoms that I had developed at that time, which was just a simple rash, um, asthma, and experienced a lot of fatigue. Um, And it's really difficult to separate that from just being um, a veteran. Um, Well, at that time, active duty. So at that point, I got help. Um, And I realized that my symptoms really didn't resolve like I had expected. Um, At that point, I began to experience additional symptoms where my eyes um, began to have some blurry ish, you know, started blurring and uh, some dryness Mm -hmm. and redness. Mm -hmm. However, over the course of 10 years, I underwent three eye surgeries. Um, I had met many doctors, uh, multiple interns and prescribed at least eight different medications at the time. Um, and I finally received my diagnosis of ocular, pulmonary, and cutaneous sarcoidosis, and you know just that the fact that my eyes, lungs, and my skin was affected was huge at the time. Um, I had no idea that this was even an issue, um, and that it couldn't be resolved when I was there. So my journey was a lot, uh, a lot longer, um, and a lot more difficult to to really to really deal with. But I'm really happy that I'm here where I'm at now. So
0: that's just a little bit about mine. (laughs) So, well, 10 years and three eye surgeries, you kind of blew through that like it was nothing, but that's, that's awful. And all of that and nobody looked around and said, there's something here, something else here that we need to be looking for. You know, um, it's really difficult. We
2: spend a lot of time in the field. um, And as a medic, um, we have to just stay always ready to deploy to do these other kind of um, activities. And so I had to stay mission ready, um, and so unfortunately, I had to put I put myself myself um, second. Um, my patients were first, my job was first, and unfortunately, uh, it just was missed overall. The docs didn't see anything that was major. I didn't see anything was major, so I totally missed it as well. It's really difficult to uh, to pinpoint what was going on at the time. So,
0: wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. actually, and I, I forgot to say this because I always do. Thank you for your service. Oh, thank you. I and, appreciate that. And uh it's amazing that you're fighting through this and you're you're putting yourself second and and your dedication to the cause first and, and to your patients um as a medic. Uh so when you were having trouble with your eyes. Was it just blurriness all the time that couldn't be corrected with glasses or or what, what was happening?
2: Yeah, so um, it's almost like having um, allergies, um, essentially. So it was really hard to distinguish allergies at that time from sarcoidosis. I just I don't think any of us were prepared for this uh, diagnosis. I certainly wasn't. So it's really difficult to continue to stay in the field to move around, to, you know, engage all the time um, as a soldier, and then really have to focus on something that seems really minor. So, you know, it was just, I think the entire situation was just a little, um, a little upsetting in general. When I look back, I realized that maybe I should have been more um, willing to look at my own symptoms and probably advocate more for myself. And because of Where I am now, I can see the mistake that I made. And I'm able to say, hey, this is really important for everybody to acknowledge your symptoms and really pay attention and really uh, get advice on what's going on, even if it looks small. So, you know, even though it was a long journey, I'm actually happy where I'm at now. So I can actually talk to people about it and help them during their journey.
0: So you're walking around life, as I like to call it right now. You have (laughs) pulmonary, cutaneous, which is skin. and and ocular which is in your eyes so when you're walking around right now are you do you consider yourself to be healthy uh wow it's a great question um so i try to remain
2: really optimistic um now because things have changed in terms of the care that i'm getting as a result of the diagnosis i've really been able to have a really good uh, relationship with my doc and so um now because of that i do see myself healthy Um, despite the condition that I have. So I am better, um, but I still have a lot of flare-ups. I have difficulty with um, breathing. I'm on a CPAP machine. I have a lot of other issues that are going on as a result of this. I'm always tired. So um, even with those symptoms, I still feel relatively um, happy and just grateful that I'm here where I'm at. It could have been a lot worse. So, um, yeah.
0: I really can't complain as much. Okay, all right. Uh, I want to bring in Dr. Obi now, uh, Dr. Obi. What do you what after hearing these two patients talk about sarcoidosis? Does that ring true to you from uh, what you see with your patients?
3: Yeah, John. Uh, first, to say thank you very much for uh, having me on the podcast. But yes, the stories that both Calvin and Catherine have shared really rings true to, you know, a lot of what I hear from my patients who have sarcoidosis. Um, So um, this is, you know, a disease that predominantly affects uh, African-Americans two and a half times more than Caucasians. And both Calvin and Catherine's story just emphasize, you know, that African-Americans tend to have more severe disease. Uh, They tend to have more uh, multi-organ involvement. And so Catherine has three uh, organs involved and the Calvin had two organs involved. Um, they tend to present, you know, later with more advanced disease, you know, um, in um, Catherine's case, it took quite a while to make a diagnosis. And overall, they tend to have more uh, morbidity from the disease, more likely to be treated with steroids, higher doses of steroids, develop complications, you know, I heard Catherine mention being on CPAP machine uh, from sleep apnea, you know, that's a a common complication we find in patients who have sarcoidosis. Um, So overall, the disease is certainly, you know, more severe, more burdensome uh, in African-Americans. They're also more likely to be, you know, admitted to the hospital sometimes up to nine times more than their Caucasian counterparts. And they have much higher mortality overall uh, from the disease up to 12 times you know, as high, or 12 times higher than uh, in Caucasian. So their stories are very unique, but they're, you know, really representative of what I hear from a lot of my patients.
0: Yeah, I I really want to dig into this. And the whole theme today is, is getting Black Americans, African Americans, Uh, more engaged with FSR and more engaged with sharing their stories and and seeking treatment and overcoming the obstacles to treatment that, that are out there. So we have a group of people who are more likely to have sarcoidosis and more likely to have severe complications from sarcoidosis and less likely to either seek or seek and then receive the treatment that they need. Dr. Obi, from your perspective, what's going on there?
3: Yeah, I think there's a lot going on. Um, You point out, you know, some very uh, important facts. You know, this is a group of people who are more likely to have the disease and yet less likely to seek care or less likely to be treated um, properly. So I think it speaks to the need of, you know, studying the disease more uh, in African-Americans so that first we can find out why is the disease more prevalent in African-Americans? Is this just genetics? My my suspicion is it's a whole lot more than genetics. I, I think it's more than just my suspicion. I think the belief, firm belief, I would say in the sarcoid communities is a lot more than just genetics. There's a lot, you know, of other things, you know, going on the racial barriers to care, socioeconomic barriers to care, gender barriers to care, you know. Um, So so there's a lot that we definitely need to learn about the disease and really the best way I would say to um, know more, to understand more about the disease is to facilitate clinical trial participation, um, clinical studies in the disease to encourage and advocate for those who are more likely to be impacted by the disease and more likely to have severe and chronic forms of the disease to be, you know, better represented in the studies about the disease. That's really the only way we can learn more about the disease and, you know, find out how best to address or treat the disease uh, in the population that's uh, mostly affected.
0: So, so FSR, is launching this campaign called Act, uh, Ignore No More, Act Now. And we are going to talk about how African-Americans can get involved with that easily and some some things that people can do. And, and so, uh, Calvin, you are a part of that campaign in a big way. What is it that you're trying to accomplish through your participation in Act Now?
1: Well, ultimately, John, the the, the hope is that um, black sarcoidosis patients will get proper care. Uh, the 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 reality is, for all the things that uh, Dr. Obi just mentioned, uh, we have all these challenges. And according to the FDA, only nine percent of all clinical trials uh, include uh, black individuals, uh, but our outcomes are so much worse. So, you know, through this committee, we're hoping to get more involvement and more uh, more action. One of the first important steps is to participate in a survey that we have out there, irrespective of how you feel about clinical trials. We wanna have that information so that we can make sure that uh, people in our community are are getting getting adequate care.
0: All right, and Catherine, uh, I'd ask you the same question because you're also involved with this. Uh, What do you think people can and should do?
2: Okay. So, you know, um, first, let me just say, I'm really, I'm really passionate um, just to ensure that our veterans and our military personnel, um, Black Americans get the care that they deserve and that all of our doctors know about sarcoidosis and that um, specifically our soldiers are at risk because of the nature of the disease and the culture of the military. But I find that kind of as a result of the culture of the military, um, which is just to push through no pain, no gain, that it's, Um, This translates to essentially what I went through was ignoring my body and symptoms. So with my advocacy, I hope to raise awareness, um, of course, with the military, military doctors, um, and just to really have people understand that early diagnosis is key to limiting some of the more severe consequences of sarcoidosis. You know, I encourage people to be vigilant um, uh, when it comes to, you know, persistent symptoms. And I encourage people to read and learn about their symptoms and seek medical attention when something just doesn't feel right. Um, And also, I've learned that being an advocate, especially at this time, it's just so important that, you know, we understand that advocacy works. Um, And I just hope that I actually get this across to people, Um, that clinical trials are important. Um, Signing up for these registries with like FSR is important. And really becoming educated about everything that you can about sarcoidosis is just huge um, in terms of our lifespan and just being healthy in general.
0: Well, let me, um, let me back up just a second here because we're talking about clinical trials. Yeah. And I don't think probably pre-pandemic, most Americans, black or white, didn't even know what a clinical trial was. But the clinical trial process is somebody develops a drug that looks promising for something. And then it has to be tested in humans, and so you have phase one, phase two, and phase three clinical trials. And if the drug comes out the other end after phase three, then it can be okayed by the FDA, and doctors can start prescribing it, and it can start helping patients. And for sarcoidosis, the number of clinical trials ten years ago was minimal—you know, none or one. And now I know from talking to different people here on the podcast, there are at least seven new drugs for sarcoidosis that are in various phases of clinical trials, but Black Americans are not participating in the clinical trials. Dr. Obie, that is true, correct?
3: That is very true, John. Um, so I think Calvin mentioned some of this just to, um, you know, kind of drive home some of that, you know, looking at uh, global, globally, um, clinical trial participation, African-Americans, you know, account for maybe about just 7%, you know, of clinical trial participation. When we look here domestically within the U.S., it's about 16% and that's compared to 78% of, you know, Caucasians. And then just like, you know, Calvin mentioned, when you drill it down to rare diseases of which sarcoid is a rare disease, we're looking at just eight or 9% participation of African-Americans versus about 70% in, in Caucasian. So absolutely our clinical trial participation um, amongst African-Americans is, is extremely low. And of course, you know, back to your 2.2 and a half times more likely to get the disease we definitely need to uh, encourage participation. And you did mention that clinical trials go through different phases, but I also want to just cast that net wide and say there's many different research opportunities that we can involve our patients in. There's right. surveys, you know, there's registries, there's, you know, where we deposit, you know, blood samples or other, you know, samples. There's so many different ways we can learn about the disease. Of course, clinical trials would be at the, you know, I would say at the top, but we can all get involved in participating in research to increase the knowledge, understanding, and you know, the treatment options for the disease.
0: Yeah, you mentioned so many, so many different things, the registries and so forth. And all of that gives us, uh, I guess, a pool of data that then researchers can look at. And, and, and that's helpful even when we're just kind of trying to formulate ideas. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes.
3: Yes. Uh, it All of it just gives us information, you know. Um, First, you want to know about the disease. We want to find out are there biomarkers that can help us identify patients who have, or who are more likely to, you know, have severe disease? What is the natural history? Why does one person have more severe disease than another person? So there's certainly a lot that we can learn from, you know, research. Um, which doesn't always have to be clinical trials, but clinical trials help us to understand more about the medicines. And sometimes it's, you know, trials looking at medicines that have been approved in other diseases to see if they work in patients who have sarcoidosis, as well as trials on drugs that have not been used at all in other diseases. And we're looking to see if these medications or drugs would be helpful in sarcoidosis.
0: Okay. Calvin, Catherine, have, have either of you participated in a clinical trial? Uh,
1: to, to date, I haven't. Um, however, I have volunteered uh, for three uh, through, through my doctor. It's just in, in each case I, I was deemed to not be a, a candidate for the trial. So, and that's one of the things that will happen sometimes is that even if you wanna do a trial, uh, you may not fit what they're what they're looking for in the group. So thus far, I haven't uh, participated fully in a trial though I, I am anxious to to do so.
2: Okay. Um, and Yeah, no, I haven't yet. Um, since being with FSR, it was actually the first time I ever found out about trials. And so now I am all for it. I'm signing up and I'm absolutely ready uh, to participate. So when I get the opportunity, I absolutely will take advantage of it.
0: I'm curious from Catherine and, and from Calvin, why do you think black patients are hesitant to participate in these things? Uh,
2: okay. So, well, um, my opinion is, is, um, there's just a lack of trust, I believe. Um, I've heard a lot of people kind of refer back to um, some things that happened in the past um, with Black Americans and you know the government, the Tuskegee um, experiment, and I think that is just something that remains. And then there's just a lot of you know you you don't have a really good um, relationship between providers sometimes and um, patient, and I think that's huge unless you establish a really good relationship and you have open communication it's really difficult to trust um anything and sometimes it's a lot about a financial um you know um it's it's really it's really difficult to have sarcoidosis and i specifically was financially frustrated from it it was just it's so expensive to be sick and it's expensive to be sick with sarcoidosis so um i think there's just a lot of different um issues that that are that are here and i hope that I named a few of them. For me, that's that's part of it. Um, maybe Calvin can step yeah. in. <laughs>
1: well, well I, I think Catherine, really, you, you say what I'm thinking. You know, I I, I know tons of folks, uh, tons of Black folks who will not go to a doctor because of a lack of trust. Um, and, and there, there are, the, the reality is there are historical things that Black folks can look back on that did happen. Um, and 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 unfortunately, that that you know still still you know takes a toll in, in many cases. Um, and I, I don't think I don't think we can understate that that just a lack of trust. And there, to my understanding, there there are ex- examples even beyond having a rare disease where you know Black patients have difficulty being listened to or feel like they're not being listened to. And the the last part, and really just reiterating to a degree what what Catherine said, it's not easy being sick with with a rare (laughs) disease unless you have resources like good insurance. And I can I, I've written about this many times. Even with me having really good insurance and world-class care at Johns Hopkins, there have been cases where despite their efforts, it's taken a while for things to happen. Or I've had to choose between am I going to wait or go out of pocket. So and and that's with me having great care and resources this is a very expensive disease and uh, un- un- unfortunately uh, even if we get over the trust even if we find a way to participate in clinical trials uh, b- black folks uh, unfortunately we we aren't all- where we always would want to be uh, you know socioeconomically so th- there are a lot of things that are challenges that are unique uh, to to black folks uh, to where you know the work that we're trying to do in supporting FSR is is very critical to our care,
0: Doctor Obi. Do you see this with patients? Do you see this hesitancy uh, or lack of trust? And and you know you you're uh, obviously African American. Do you, do you, the, do, you, do you think they trust you more because you're black?
3: Yeah. So I I think um, both um, Calvin and 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 Catherine have definitely hit the nail on the head. Um, There certainly is a lot of barriers to participation in clinical trials in the African-American community. Uh, Do I see lack of trust as a barrier? I certainly do. Um, But but I think establishing a good relationship with your physician, and as a physician, certainly establishing a good relationship with your patients, being honest, open, you know, having a, you know, great, you know, channel of communication at all times certainly helps with those barriers. Um, Seeing physicians that look like you um, help with those barriers as well. Um, But also to touch on a few of the other barriers that I've also seen amongst my patients is I would say Uh, maybe a lack of understanding of what clinical trial participation is or entails or the benefits that, you know, come from clinical trial participation. So many times, you know, it just involves having a good long conversation as to what the benefits are to the patient as well as to the community and to the disease, you know, itself. So that, you know, helps a lot of my patients to, you know, um, participate in trials or encourages them to participate in trials. But I also want to highlight a few other barriers, you know, to clinical trial participation beyond, you know, patient related factors. So the clinician, the researchers themselves too, also have to be up to date with knowledge about the disease, knowledge about available clinical trials, I I would say we also as physicians, clinicians, researchers also need to address whatever implicit or explicit biases that we have. So sometimes there's a hesitancy to ask uh, minorities or African-Americans to participate in trials, whether we think that they will say no because of the perceived lack of trust, or whether we think that, you know, they may not be compliant or they may not be able to follow through with the trial protocols, Um, or, you know, whether we think they're not um, going to be able to for several different reasons. So I think those are clinician related factors. I also will say um, that, you know, there are many systemic factors that are barriers that we also within the SACOI community need to start addressing. So um, African-Americans are more likely to be socioeconomically disadvantaged, meaning they're more likely to work you know, jobs that they're not able to take time off of. And clinical trial participation involves time. Sometimes means you have to drive long distances. Sometimes means you need to find somebody to take care of your children. So being able to address those barriers, whether it's through compensation or being able to reach out to um, the workplaces, you know, all of that would, I would, say, I would say, encourage clinical trial participation. And you know, sometimes, too, our clinical trials are way too rigid. There's really no reason to be at the clinical trial center three or four days a week, um, so to speak. So I think there's a lot. At play here, and a lot that we need to address and and I think that you know filling out the survey and being able to highlight some of those barriers will help us understand really what the major wants uh, are in patients or African American patients who have sarcoidosis so we can address them
0: well you boy you you uh you gave us a lot of information there I want to unbundle just a little bit of it so you said that and you've been the, the, the person who's looking at the patient as a doctor. And you said, sometimes doctors just assume that that patient can't or won't participate in a clinical trial. So you don't even bring it up. How, how do you personally overcome that hesitancy and how do we get other physicians to understand that we need to bring more African-Americans into these trials and, and overcome that, that, that hesitancy from the physician side.
3: Well, I think the first thing is to be self-aware, first to understand that you have that hesitancy because you haven't asked the patient, so you don't know what that patient is going to say. So you have to address it in yourself first. And then I think being open and honest with the patient, establishing a rapport with the patient, understanding the limitations, you know, that the patient has, we I think, need to see our patients as more than just faces or numbers or times, you know, 15 minute slots. Sometimes it just takes, you know, multiple visits. I know what this patient's challenges are. And honestly, there's really nothing like just saying, mm-hmm. or first of all, being aware of the trial opportunities and just asking, right? It, yeah. They may yeah. not say yes that first time, but It's rare, honestly, that I've asked a patient, or I would say talked with a patient about clinical trial participation that they've said an outright no. It's always been, hmm, let me think about it. It's always been, hmm, what does this entail? So there's not too many, you know, flat out no's. And that, you know, opens up that conversation. So I I would encourage other providers like myself to maybe adopt some of these.
0: Yeah. But you know, I you you uh, you mentioned one thing is is the it's the 15 minute visit. So you go to the healthcare center wherever you are, you sit in the large waiting room, then they call your name and you go back to the little waiting room and then the the nurse comes in and takes your blood pressure and then you sit there and you wait for the doctor to come and you get about 15 minutes with the doctor and then the doctor moves on to the next room and it's always been um, with the exception of going to the Cleveland Clinic, where I have not had that experience, every other doctor that I've been to, you get that 15 minutes and it's done. And that it looks to me like that doctor is under pressure to get to as many patients as possible in a given day. And that's after uh, you know waiting three or four months to get an appointment. You get your 15 minutes. Am I am I wrong? No, you're not wrong, John. (laughs) And yes, the doctor
3: is under pressure (laughs) to see as many patients as possible. So that is true too. Uh, But I I do think that, you know, over time, now remember, you're probably not going to ask the very first time you see the patient. You're going to build a relationship with your patient. And maybe it's not this 15 minutes. Maybe it's not the next 15 minutes. But, you know, you're going to see your patient over months and years. And at some point, you mention it. If it doesn't work this 15 minutes, it might work another 15 minutes. And I'm also increasingly finding that, you know, developing some flexibility, phone calls, um, virtual visits. Some of those, you know, um, non-traditional visits open up opportunities and avenues to talk a little bit more with the patient. And to let them know things available, so I do think we we yes, the fifteen minutes is a barrier, but it is not an insurmountable barrier.
0: It's it's just hard to get to know somebody in that short amount of time, and then and then it's months. I, for the record, no one's ever asked me to participate in a clinical trial either. <laughs> not and, too late, and I have spent a lot of time. <laughs> uh with my doctors and physicians dealing with sarcoidosis. So um so so now we've got these clinical trials out there. We we understand that there's a certain hesitancy and yet it's so important if this is the largest group of people who are dealing with sarcoidosis and they are most likely to have bad outcomes this is where FSR comes in and, and I guess I'll go to Catherine and to Calvin for this because you guys are volunteering, trying to change the status quo right now. So, so what happens next? How do we, how do we overcome these barriers? Do, do we get to the point where the patient starts asking the doctor what's going on? What do you think?
2: Uh Yeah. Um, So I don't think that's actually a bad idea. I think it's really important. Um. You know, to uh, again be educated on, on on what what the what the disease is, um, and do your own research, and then ask doctors. You know, find out what's going on. I think sometimes you have to be that person that starts the conversation, and I don't see anything wrong with that, uh, quite frankly. And the way I'm looking at you know advocacy in general is like wins along the way are needed, and from these um, our advocacy we learn and transform lives as a result. So. Um, FSR has just been huge um, in helping me talk to other people about it, and oftentimes what I found out is um, bringing in people who are really famous. Um, for example, um, unfortunately, Bernie Mac um, passed away um, from his from complications of sarcoidosis. But if you're able to say, "Hey, this person had that," and that brings them, you know, to this place, like, "Oh, well, this is a real thing." Um, anything that I can use. To, to To tilt the the scale a little bit in my favor to get people to listen, I'll do it. Um, and at this point, this is exactly what I plan on doing on this journey. So, um, I hope I answered that
0: correctly. <laughs> sure, Calvin.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and I, th- I I could not agree more. And and part of it is 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 right here. You know, you know, talking about it here. I, I think the more we can talk about it and communicate about it and 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 let people you know. Hopefully, each time we reach a little bit, a little bit more, um, a little bit more folks. And hopefully, over time, it'll make a difference. You know, we certainly again want to encourage people that who are who are listening to to fill out the survey um, that we have. uh, You know, irrespective of how you feel about it um, about clinical trials, and and then it's you know admittedly one person at a time uh, to try to to try to get them there, Um, and hopefully it'll make a difference. If if it's just one, one additional person, we'll make a, we'll make a difference and we'll, we'll get there eventually.
0: Yeah. You mentioned uh, the survey and, and I've probably, I should have brought that up before now, but if, if listeners go, and this will be in the show notes to www.stop slash act now, there's a right. survey there for uh, black Americans who have sarcoidosis, and so that will get you in the system, so to speak. Now, now there's a record of you, and the, and your data can be analyzed uh, by by folks. And there's also we're talking about getting it out there so people know. There's FSR has put together a wonderful, beautiful, colorful social media toolkit, so you you can just take whatever whatever you want from that toolkit and put it on instagram put it on facebook get it out there and share it in your community that is really going to help dr olby uh, you're familiar with this survey can you talk a, a little bit more about it talk about it doesn't take that long to fill it out i don't think talk about what it is and how valuable that is to you as a physician and physicians and the medical community in general yeah, the survey takes maybe
3: about five, seven minutes, you know, to complete. Um, so it's really not a lot of time, and it, you know, asks a lot of questions about um, would you participate in a uh, clinical trial? Uh, if so, you know, why? What are some topics that are important to you in clinical trial participation? If you would not in, uh, participate in a clinical trial, tell us why, because we really need to know. We need to have all perspectives, whether you're going to participate or not. Would like to know those. It asks, you know, the barriers to participation. What can we do to, you know, make it easier for you to participate? So that's really important, and that's very good information for us because we need to figure out how to encourage um, or increase or be advocates for increased participation of, you know, African Americans in clinical trials. And and why why is it important to me? Because it's important because, again, sarcoidosis is two and a half times more likely to affect um, African-Americans, and yet clinical trial representation is only about 9%. So figuring out how the disease impacts us is critical first to knowing you know more about the natural history of the disease and being able to develop therapies that will be uh, effective in uh, those who are most impacted by the disease.
0: I'm just curious, as a physician, what do do you have any theories as to the cause of sarcoidosis? I know nobody knows. My doctor told me it was probably something I breathed in. What 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 do you think it is? Well, um, what we know is there's, you
3: know, a gene environment, you know, interaction. So there's people who are predisposed, you know, to um, getting sarcoidosis. And then based on whether it's an exposure or multiple exposures in the environment, they end up developing, you know, sarcoidosis. I don't think it's one particular exposure. I think it's probably, you know, several different exposures, you know, uh, there's been studies saying maybe some, you know, bacterial infections, maybe exposures to moles. We know sarcoidosis will cause more in certain occupations, you know, firefighters in the Navy and, you know, agricultural workers, metal workers, you know. Um, so I think it's probably a combination of exposures. Um, but I, I think you said it right. We don't really know what causes sarcoidosis um gotcha.
0: yeah unfortunately okay. all right well you, you mentioned firefighters and catherine you know you're you're in the military um uh, and you're active in that group with veterans in particular um uh, congress just passed the pact act and that uh has an impact on veterans as well you want to uh update us on that and, and how that makes a difference oh absolutely um
2: Just to kind of start off, I'd like to tell you what the Pact Act actually is. So it's a new law that expands VA healthcare and benefits for veterans exposed to burn pits and other toxic substances. So um, this is named in honor of Sergeant First Class Heath Robinson, who was a decorated combat medic and he died from a rare lung disease or lung cancer. Um, And so this historic legislation will help deliver more timely benefits and services to more than 5 million veterans across all generations. Who may have been impacted by toxic exposures while serving in our country. So, um, this is also such a huge, huge moment, um, just in history. It's the PAC Act is one of the largest healthcare and benefits expansion ever so far. And so, what we're looking at is the PAC Act will bring um, five major changes um, that I'd like to just briefly cover. Um, and sure, the first go for it. Is- yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So the first is it helps and improves research uh, treatment for toxic exposure, and just educates like the staff and um, veterans and their families. Um, the second thing here is that it requires VA to provide toxic exposure screening for every veteran enrolled in VA healthcare. That is so important, um, and I'll touch back on that just in a second. Um, this. The PACT Act also extends and expands eligibility for VA health care for veterans with toxic exposures from the Vietnam, go for, and post 9-11 errors. So this is huge for people who have already served their country and may have already gone through these exposures and nothing has happened. Also, uh, the PACT Act adds more presumptive exposure locations for Agent Orange and radiation. And last, um, it adds more than 20 new presumptive conditions for burn pits and toxic exposures. And that's where sarcoidosis, IOD, and pulmonary fibrosis comes in. There's so many more, but um, just for today's discussion, that's really important. Um, And just really quick, if you don't mind, I'd like to explain what having a presumptive condition really means. So in terms of VA disability, Um, To get a VA disability rating, the disability must connect to your military service. So in other words, for many health conditions, you have to prove that your service caused your condition. Now, for some conditions, the VA automatically assumes or presumes that our service caused the condition and that's what we consider presumptive. Now, the condition is also considered presumptive when it's been established by a law or regulation as we see now. Um, And if you have a presumptive condition, you don't need to prove that your service caused the condition. However, um, you will have to meet service requirements for presumption, such as, were we in a certain location? Did we serve in an era such as Vietnam, the Gulf War, or the post 9-11 errors? Um, Were we within a certain discharge date? And all of that is so important. And it's just such a huge step uh, for VA, for veterans, for our caregivers, for our families this is just a great opportunity and a great time for uh, veterans
0: and their families. Thank you. you no, know, sure. I, I can tell you're passionate about that, and uh, I'm happy to uh, happy to give you the airtime for that for sure. I, I just want to circle back. You know the, the the term burn pit has. You know, I, I'm a news anchor, and I probably have said it a hundred times on the news as we've watched uh, Congress fail for a long time to pass this act uh and i don't you know it was political reasons not not common sense it had to have been because it just makes so much sense to have passed it um and, and we know that the firefighters who were at 9-11 have a super high incidence of sarcoidosis do we also see that with these burn pits or any of the other situations that you mentioned service in the gulf war or or those situations
2: Oh, absolutely.
0: Um, and again, I
2: I I try to stay away from the politics of it, but absolutely, um, this has denied quite a few veterans for a really long time. And, it, and we're talking about going back to Vietnam. That tells you about these toxic exposures have been here and burn pits, you know, just burning trash. That was the policy at that time. And so that unfortunately has been um, a huge issue for veterans. And again, just to have this PACT Act um, where it is right now is just huge. Um, and I'm just so extremely excited that we're moving forward. So I think that was a great question. Thank you for asking that.
0: Sure. Dr. Obi. Uh, just curious, uh, is this going to make a difference in the patients that you see or, or their ability to get treatment they need?
3: Oh, I think it will make a huge difference in their lives and in their ability to get the treatments that they need. And I Really, I'm very happy it's been passed and I share Catherine's enthusiasm
0: <laughs> and joy. <laughs> sure, well, this is this is great. So the takeaways from today then is, uh, or, or are, that uh, sarcoidosis is out there, that it is out there predominantly in the African-American community, and yet that group does not seek treatment and that group does there does also not seek uh or is not asked to participate in clinical trials and fsr and everybody on this podcast wants to change all of that how about how about if we just do a round table real quick calvin last thoughts from you
1: I, i think you said it well right there we 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 want to have more black patients involved in clinical trials um this the survey and, and the work to come from FSR is, is a great way to be a part of it.
0: Okay, Catherine?
2: Yeah, I echo what uh, Calvin said. And in addition, I'd like to say, you know, this is all about raising awareness of sarcoidosis and this the importance of clinical trials um, and enrolling in health education programs just to get educated, remaining healthy, interviewing, participating in surveys in these patient registries um, and visiting FSR um, is really just an important step to changing uh, where we are right now.
0: Okay, great. And Dr. Obi? Yeah, I think
2: I echo
3: what um, both uh, Calvin and Catherine have said. And and just to add, too, that um, if you're seeing a physician who hasn't asked you uh, to participate in a clinical trial, please bring it up. You know, ask about clinical trials. Um, and, you know, on the website, there's uh, lots of different locations that you can, um, you know, call if you're in those areas to, and ask to participate in clinical trials. Um, again, 15 minutes is a short time. So if your physician doesn't bring it up, bring it up. We're happy to talk about it.
0: Very good. Well, thank you all for joining me here on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast.
3: Thank you very much for having us, John. Thank,
0: thank you. feel. If you've listened and are now inspired to become a part of maybe a clinical trial, FSR is asking all eligible patients to complete a survey for black Americans who have sarcoidosis to help them inform recommendations for improving care in clinical trials. So this is just... Tell them more about you so they can help figure it out. And this survey is available through October 30th of 2022. So you'll have to act quickly if you are listening to this. Uh, It'll be released uh, very early in November, but you don't have a lot of time. So to learn more about the survey, the incentives for completing the survey and act now in general, just go to www.stopsarcoidosis.org slash act now and you can find that survey there and I'll make it easy by putting a link in the show notes. Okay? So... Let's see if we can't get to the bottom of this, and hopefully a year from now, we'll be talking about all the progress, and maybe we can have some more folks on and talk about it at that time. A reminder, the official Sark Fighter song is Zombie by Mark Steyer and his band, the White Hot Lizards. Mark is a fellow Sark Fighter. Episode 12 is his story. I normally release the Sark Fighter podcast every other Monday. As I am speaking today, my trusty... Dog Dougal, my rescue boxer, is curled up on the chair in my office. And Dougal makes my life so much better. Don't forget to follow the Sark Fighter podcast on social, Facebook, and Instagram. If you have a Peloton, bicycle, or treadmill, uh, you can find me on there as Sark Fighter. My cycling blog is called Carlin the Cyclist and it has a section called Cycling with Sarcoidosis. The backstory to the founding of the foundation for Sark Research is episode 11 with Andrea and Redding Wilson. She is a fellow Sark Fighter. If you're new here and you are just trying to figure out what sarcoidosis is, Go back and listen to episode two with Dr. Simon Hart. He goes over sarcoidosis 101. If you want to know what my deal is, if you don't know by now, uh, it's episode one. Please send me an email. It's in the show notes, carlinagency at gmail.com. Leave me a comment or you can request to be on the show. Follow the Sark Fighter, as I said, on social, on Instagram and on Facebook. And if you like the Sark Fighter podcast, It helps grow the show and make it more effective if you share it on your social media. But better yet, just tell one person, just tell somebody in the sarcoidosis space, hey, they're doing great things over there on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. So just share it with one person. Thanks a lot for listening. And until next time, keep fighting.